Welcome to Livestream Stars. I'm Ross Brand. This is the show where we feature talented broadcasters and content marketers and social media personalities. And would you consider yourself a customer service expert or personality? Nobody ever really tags that to themselves. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Maybe I've made a terrible. Maybe I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but you know, it's true. Let me just—it's true. Like, so look, people know me as a marketing guy, and I've been a marketing guy my whole life. But I wrote a book about customer service, and I'm doing a lot of work in customer service consulting now too. But man, it's super hard to write a book about customer service because everybody thinks they're already good at it, right? They're like, well, what do I need a what do I need a customer service expert for? We answer the phone. I'm like, well, there's more to it than that. And it's it's not the the super sexy area, right? It isn't the customer service folks that get the tickets to the front of the symphony that the company subscribes to or the the luxury box at the you know at the super bowl or whatever that always goes to the salespeople, the marketing people and advertising people walk around like they're creatives and the customer service are sort of in the back with the admin right i mean (laughs) look i mean customer service has been has been treated as a necessary evil or as a stepchild for generations of business people like this isn't just five minutes ago this has been for decades uh and it's got to stop because customer service is the new marketing customer service is being disrupted the same way that marketing has been disrupted um and and you can actually differentiate your business by being the best at customer service in your category uh thankfully people are starting to do it but i'll tell you just how marginalized it is ross so there's a stat in the book that I cite that, that $500 billion a year are spent on marketing, $9 billion a year are spent on customer service. So like, I can't even put my, my, my hands front of a part and actually make that ratio and still stay in the frame. It's like, this is the difference right. between marketing spend and customer service spend because, you know, people have forever spent as little as possible. What's your customer service budget? As small as possible. Right. Like that's right. literally been the plan. Right. And, and now thankfully we're just starting to see this customer service revolution where people realize like hey being great at customer service is marketing so welcome everyone again to Livestream stars my guest tonight jay bear and Livestream stars is the show where we fe- feature talented broadcasters delivering high quality content across live stream platforms and Livestream stars is brought to you by Livestream universe check it out livestreamuniverse.com and we have a new website just for this show it's livestreamstars.tv. And a quick note, next week, we have a great guest as well, Brian Fanzo, iSocial Fans. Will Social be joining Fans! Us to talk about the one-year anniversary of Periscope, and we'll get into the future of live I hope streaming. That kid, I hope that kid survived South by Southwest. It looked like he was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> like he was doing it the way I did it a few years ago when I was still a young man, uh, like all in. Now I don't even go. I'm like, I'm you didn't too, even go this year. Huh? I'm too old for that shit. No, it's actually, you know what I did? I actually <laughs> stopped going um, a couple of years ago because it's always, 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 always the same week as my kids spring break. Uh, and I'm on the road 48 weeks a year as it is. Uh, and so I'm like, look, I, I'm not going to go steal spring break from them anymore. So uh, I hate to miss South by tons of my friends are there and lots of clients. So it's obviously amazing, but uh, it's nice to be home. You know what I did today, Ross? I'll tell you what I did today. Yes. I actually went with my daughter and my wife and my son, who was like, took one for the team. We <laughs> drove an hour and 15 minutes to some crappy town that has nothing in this town except for the Southern Indiana's best prom dress store. 
and the four of us went shopping for prom dresses. That must have been daughter. fun for your son. It was, yeah. He, <laughs> he went through an entire iPhone with a battery um, just sitting in the lobby. Uh, so that's what I did. Instead of going to South By, I did prom dress shopping. Yeah, you know, he's very lucky he got to do that in the social era because in a previous era, he would have had to read a book I or had, do a crossword puzzle or you know I, something like that. I put it on Snapchat. I put my actual prom dress. Uh, and true story. So we tried on. Well, I didn't try on any, but she tried on. I don't know. You know how it goes. Like 15 dresses. Right, right. Of all the dresses she picked out, the one that she actually bought was the one that dad chose. Wow. Right here, baby. There's all <laughs> these like ladies there in the dress shop fawning over her. How about this one? How about this one? I'm like, hey, how about this one? And that was the one that she picked. Booyah. I told the lady at the dress store, like, if you guys want an application, I could come in nights and weekends. I could just ha- ha- you know help out, but they weren't interested in that. At all. If the marketing thing doesn't work out for you, you right. have something to dress, fall back dress on. Consultant. It's always good. Consultant. You know, it's actually in my bio. Um, it's the third line down as prom dress consultant. After the number one content marketing blog, world's right. most yes. retweeted digital marketer. Yeah, exactly. Utility, New York Times bestseller, uh, president of Convince and Convert, and uh, prom dress consultant. You know what? You and, know, and that's something you can do both online and in person, right? People can send you their photos, or do you need to actually like meet with the client for, for something like that? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think. And how do you handle your haters? When from, you're... A, from a fit perspective, I think you got to actually have the person there for reals. I really do. Okay. So let's get to the thing that you've done just most recently, which is you've released this book. I hope people can see it. It's called Hug Your Haters. And the subtitle is How to Embrace Complaints and Keep Your Customers. And Here's the thing that struck me more than any other fact, figure, stat. And by the way, what is what is with the doing research in a business book? Don't <laughs> no, you know that you're sorry. supposed to take a theory, find a few anecdotal well, things that support it, maybe I, tell a personal story or two, and then run with it? And in 10 years when people figure out it isn't so, you'll already Including my own books, right? <laughs> including my own previous four books, right? But but I, no, we talked about it at the outside of the show, Ross. That, but here's the thing, Okay. Nobody wants to read a book on customer service and nobody wants to buy a book on customer service. Nobody wants to hear my customer service story where I say you're not good at it. So the only way I could actually get people to believe me is to spend an enormous amount of time and money on real research, right? So you're exactly, this isn't Jay says, Jay's an expert. Jay says you should do this. There is all kinds of data in this book. And that's the only way people are going to believe it. I just figured like, look, you know, you got to fight, you got to fight inertia with math um, in this case. And so uh, that's what we did. And thank you for recognizing that. And and uh, I'm not sure I would do that for every book, but for this book, I think it needed it. So here's what stands out first and foremost. 80% of companies think that they do an exceptional job with customer service, and only 8% of their customers actually agree. Yeah, we got a problem. Why, uh, why is there big, such right? a gap in perception? So I'll tell you why. Uh, that great research is from Bain. That, that was not part of my research project. That was from Bain. Did an amazing job on that. So uh, here's why that's true. If you if you ask a company, hey, are you guys great at customer service? They will think immediately and naturally in comparison to the other people that do whatever they do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's say you own uh, let's say you own a dry cleaner. And you say, hey, are you guys great at customer service? They're going to think about the other three dry cleaners in town. They're like, yeah, we're great. Those guys suck, <laughs> right? And so they're like, yeah, hells yeah. Well, then if you ask a customer, is the dry cleaner great at customer service? They're, gonna, they're not thinking of the other three dry cleaners. They're thinking of all the businesses on the planet 
right? They're thinking JetBlue, Southwest, Ritz-Carlton, you know, Zappos, all the classic stories. And they're like, well, no, they're adequate. And so that's the difference, right? Is that right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether your competition is doing this or whether you are. The greatest companies in the world are training your customers what to expect. And that's true for every business and every category everywhere in the world. And, and it's not like your customers are going to give you a pass because you happen to be in this industry versus that industry. We're going to get to a time and that time is coming down the tracks right now where it's like, look, you're not open 24 hours a day. Everybody else is too bad. Suck it up. Right. One of the things that that I, I think you take away from the book um, that that no matter what business you're in is that just a small improvement in customer service can make a huge improvement in your top line revenue. In fact, probably more so than anything else, you could make a similar investment of of time and money in. Do, do you uh, feel that way from absolutely. from your research? You know, and I look, I knew that. In fact, everybody knows this. Right. I mean, look. You learn this on the first day in business. I mean, you learn this by lunch on the first day in business. Somebody pulls you aside on your first day at work as an intern and says, hey, let me tell you a little lesson about business. The lesson is that uh, it makes way more sense to keep the customers you've already gained than to constantly have to get new customers over and over and over and replace them. Okay, you got that? Yeah, I mean, like everybody knows that. There's no art. There's no counter argument to that. No one's going to say, oh, no, you're retention's terrible. You should just recycle customers all the time. That's way smarter. Like no one's ever said that. It doesn't make any sense. But yet we don't really run our businesses that way based on the revenue model I just told you. Uh, research shows, this is also from Bain and Fred Reichel, that 5%, 5% increase in retention, just a little bit, can right. increase profits by 25 to 85% because you get this geometric multiplier effect when you keep your customers longer. Not to mention the fact you actually have to spend less marketing dollars because your customers stick around. You may have heard the saying that um, advertising is a tax on the unremarkable. Mm -hmm. Robert Johnson, who started Geek Squad, said that originally. Advertising is a tax on the unremarkable. What I like to say is that advertising is a tax on companies who suck at customer service. Right, right. Like if you were really, really good at customer service and all your customers stayed and they never wanted to leave, you'd almost never have to advertise because your customers would do all your marketing for you. Zappos is a good example, overused in the customer service world. It's a trope at this point, but but there is definitely a kernel of truth to it, maybe a whole cob, in that they never spend any money on advertising because right. their customers are so delighted they do it for them. Well, who wouldn't want to run a business like that? But yet almost no business has actually run like that. And do you find that this works? You know, this is across the board, whether it's a mom and pop shop on the corner or it's, you know, a global corporation or what have you in between, whether it's retail or it's, you know, you're a service provider or you're a solopreneur. You know, do you find that this is a consistent thing yes. or is this? Okay. Yeah. So it's an easy answer. In, in fact, in fact, it's not in the book because it gets... It gets so granular at that point that it kind of like, I don't know, this is too much math, but I actually have it's over here on the other monitor, like a whole spreadsheet. Uh, we've got like 500 pages of research um, that shows the impact on customer advocacy when you hug your haters and answer complaints by category. So right. small service companies, major corporations, cable TV, airlines, restaurants, like name the business. It's all the same. Now, there's slight variations, of course, but generally speaking, I can tell you unequivocally that answering customer complaints makes your customers happy and makes them stay. Not answering customer complaints makes them unhappy and almost assures that they will leave forever. 
And yet so many business owners and companies and executives feel that they're giving away something. Like we sold our product for X amount. Now you want us to do more. Yeah. We've already like I actually had an interview once with a sales manager at a major company who told me, you seem like a nice guy, but you're one of these win-win guys. And my philosophy is I win, you lose, bleep you. Yeah, I got the check. We're done. Basically, that's how we play. And if you're not willing to play that way, maybe this isn't the right place for you. Yeah. And I've had other people say, you know, I've had other people tell me that they've went for sales jobs where they've been told they're too nice to the customer. Yeah. Yeah. You have a reputation of being really nice to the customer. We don't have time for that around here. Or, you know, nice people go work in customer service, which is clearly in our in our line of thinking a step down because the sales superstar will bend all the rules for them but if the customer service person is five minutes late they're going to get fired and and in fact we know exactly like every executive knows who are the high-ranking salespeople but they probably don't even know who works in customer service let alone what their metrics are that's true how do you i mean this is like a huge question and and Probably not something you know you can dive into completely, but how do you start to build a culture or change a culture in an organization where it, they feel like they're they're being robbed? You know, you're taking a dollar out of their pocket if they have to put a dollar into customer service. Well, the nice and 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 let me just acknowledge the fact that it is cultural. So mm-hmm. any company can be good at customer service. All you got to do is put resources against it. Only certain companies can be great at customer service because to be great requires culture. You have to actually embrace the premise of customer service and customer satisfaction and customer experience. You have to say at the molecular level in our DNA, we believe that by being better to the customer than the customer expects, it will drive financial benefits that help build this brand. Right. Better to so the you, customer you, than the customer expects. I like right. that. Yeah, and that's well, that's what customer experience mm-hmm. is, right? So I talk about right. this a lot lately that we, we talk about great customer experience all the time. It's like axiomatic. We throw it around, great customer experience, great customer, but no one actually defines it. And, and what it really means, in my estimation, is you have done something that manifestly and significantly exceeds the customer's expectation. So the customer thinks this, you're here. That difference is where great customer experience lives. Right. right, right. Conversely, if the customer expects this and you're here, that's where bad customer experience lives. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. all about expectation management, even in the hug your haters book. I mean, the the thing that we pointed out in the research is that the quickest way to get your customers to love you is to answer their questions and complaints in the places they don't expect you to answer, which is social media, review sites like Yelp, TripAdvisor, those kind of places, and discussion boards and forums. The reason that works, the reason that's the hug your haters formula is it's an expectation game. They don't expect it. So when you answer like, holy shit, these guys are amazing, right? And so that's, that's the deal. Now, but you're exactly right. Ultimately, to be great, it requires culture. And the only way you move culture, and this is ironic, right? The only way you move culture was with math. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, now that's not entirely true. There are some companies who are just like, look, we just believe it because it's the right thing to do. And so maybe they accidentally, you know, struck upon this. And I'd say that's probably Zappos's case, right? They, they, they didn't necessarily financially model customer service. They just sort of felt it was the right thing for them. But typically, if you want to say, look, let's get real serious about this, you have to model the financial impact. The good news is that it's not hard to model that financial impact. If you want to do a study that says, okay, 
we treat customers in general like this and we answer this many complaints or whatever. This is our baseline. Now for a month, let's take half of our customers and treat them up this. And now let's do a study that looks at their satisfaction, their advocacy, their lifetime customer value, their average purchase, their retention rate. I mean, that's not that's not a moon launch. All it is is market research. Like right, any right. company of any size can do that. Even small companies can do it uh, if they wanted to do it. So, so, so this idea that we can't figure out if customer service makes sense, that's ridiculous. Just do some math. Right. right. And so in, in changing the culture that goes into who you hire, how you train people, how people who have no customer contact at all still buy into the, the thinking, buy into the mindset, buy into the philosophy, understand yeah. the numbers, right? So that, so that they're imparting that, that mindset onto other employees and it, it becomes contagious. Um, one thing I'm curious about, um, some of the people um, who watch this, this show are, are, are HR people, and I have a background in HR as well. From an, from a, an internal um, marketing, internal customer service perspective, I would assume these same principles apply to how you treat your employees, how you address employee complaints, right? It's far cheaper to accommodate somebody's schedule by moving it around slightly or whatever than it is to go out and find an equally productive employee and you know, recruiting is far more expensive than retention and so forth. But the same thing probably works where hearing out employees and finding what they need to be better at their job and enjoy their job and thus be more productive is probably worth a lot more than having either a disgruntled employee or an employee who's eventually going to leave because the cost of recruiting and finding somebody who can actually do the job and do it and get them up to speed and all that on and on and on is, is far more expensive. But again, that's another area that companies feel grudging about, right? <laughs> it's a very similar dynamic. Uh, and, and you get into the same concept where you say, well, what if these employees are just going to take advantage of that? And, and they're going to try and push the envelope and push the envelope and push the envelope. The same thing we hear about customers, which is, well, you know, we're not going to bend over backwards to do anything the customer wants. The customer's not always right. And I acknowledge that in the book. I'm like, no, the customer's not always right. Neither is the employee, but both should be heard. And, and what's fascinating to me uh, is I think the same thing is true in, in HR, although I'm not an HR expert, although I think actually the next book in my sort of utility hug your haters to be determined triumvirate is going to be an HR book. I really do. Right. Uh, and so it, it's really fascinating. In the research, we found that you've got multiple stages in this sort of advocacy ladder, right? So somebody complains and you answer the complaint. Um, the first thing you can do is just answer it. Like, I hear you. I hear that you have a problem. Second thing you can do is actually solve that problem and resolve it, okay? Right. Here's the fascinating thing. You get about 75 to 80% of the actual advocacy bump because of the answer. You get an extra 20 to 25 in the resolution. And I'm sure that's true for HR as well. So what, what, what that means said metaphorically is that listening and replying is chicken. Problem solving is gravy. It's nice right. to have gravy. Everybody likes gravy, but you have to have chicken. And so when people say, Jay, I can't do what you say in this book. In this book, you say, you say, answer every complaint in every channel every time. I can't do that because we'd be giving away all this stuff. I'm like, I'm not saying you have to solve every problem. I'm not saying you do whatever every customer wants. I'm saying that you tell every customer who complains that you heard them. It's a different right. it's a different equation. Right. And then you mentioned in the book after two 
two contacts, say online, move it to a private conversation right. or reply just stop only responding. Twice. That's my rule of reply only twice. You never answer a customer more than twice online in public. Um, it's either counterproductive uh, or a waste of time. So if somebody says, I hate you, you say, I'm terribly sorry. And they say, well, it's great that you're sorry, but I really hate you. You say, hey, we must have done something to, to really set you off. Could we maybe have a more nuanced conversation about this? Could you call me or email me? I'd love to talk to you. I really want to know what, what happened. And they come back a third time and say, I don't want to call you or, or email you. <laughs> I still hate you. I just hate you. And then at that point, what most no people point. do, because they're, if you use a poker metaphor, what most people do at that point is they answer a third time and a fourth and a fifth because they figure they're pot committed. Well, I've already right. taken the time to answer this person. So now I have to solve it. I have to take it all the way to this logical conclusion. And it gets into this really counterproductive negative vortex tit for tat. You've already right? offered them an opportunity to right. address whatever. And so after the second one, just walk away. Because right. you've given them two chances, you give them an alternate contact mechanism. And most importantly, I cannot emphasize this enough, customer service now is a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. So yes, you want to make that, that hater happy. Of course you do. But ultimately, the economic impact of all the people who are watching, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Yelp, TripAdvisor, whatever, Blab, the economic impact of the people watching is way greater than the economic impact of the one person. So don't feel the need right. to, to sort of get into this whole like, you know, negative scenario. Just walk away because you're on record now as demonstrating your values, demonstrating that you care, demonstrating that you actually have the kind of culture that does support customers who are unhappy and then move on to the next one. I can think of actually a time where just knowing that the company responded made a difference. Like I was choosing between three or four hotels that all had mixed reviews. So I went with the one where they responded to every single complaint with how they were going. They, you know, I'm sorry you had this experience. This is how we're trying to address it or let us know next time you come and we'll get you a different room or whatever. I said, well, at least they care enough to acknowledge that that their reviews are mixed. The other ones don't yeah. seem to care. So maybe they're trying to do the right thing. I'm going to guess that that one might be a little better experience. I have a chance at a better experience. I don't know. Yeah. But so it does, it does help. Like you said, it's a spectator sport because while I never left a review, I never commented on a review. I did take notice which company cared. And this was before I read hug your haters. So this is clearly like human instinct, right? <laughs> So it's clearly human instinct to notice who's acknowledging, you know, their customers and who's responding and who's not, right? Hey, we all I, hear I stories of, of like, course. I got a bad meal at the restaurant and I took it, I, I brought it back. Yep. And they said, no, I'm not giving you your 450 back because, yes. you know, it's not worth it to us. Yeah. I mean, there's and a then guy you know in the that they're going to tell 100 people and they're not, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. It's such right, short term right. thinking. Well, and you know, the, and the other problem is is that small businesses in particular are guilty of this, but but many companies are as well. It's this, it's the bad customer syndrome. Uh, I hear it all the time, especially now that we're doing more consulting in this area. You hear this thing like, "Well, if that's how that customer feels, they're a bad customer. We never wanted them anyway." As if somehow them calling you, uh, you know, about something that's not perfect or, or leaving a comment that's not a five-star review somehow makes them a customer not worth having, right? And I'm like, right. whoa, you've got it totally backwards, totally backwards. Because people who complain, who take their time to tell you what you could do better are the most important customer you will ever have. Right. But we treat them like the least important customers we have, and it's totally backwards, and it's totally crazy. 
Right, because the places where you complain most passionately are the ones where you don't want to sever those relationships. Right, because you care. You care about the fact that your expectations weren't met. The dangerous customers are the ones who are dissatisfied and just leave. Right, right, because they can either take it or leave it basically anyway. don't tell anybody. I call them the meh in the middle in the book. They just poof. You know, and when you hear your business people saying, hey, whatever happened to Larry? Larry used to come in every Tuesday. (laughs) I haven't seen Larry in a while. That's a danger sign. Right, like right. When you regular stop showing up, like you've got a real problem. Before we get to some of the questions, I, one more thing I want to ask you is um, in a B2B versus B2C environment, B2C environment, a lot of times you're going to deal with a customer service department, call center, things like that, right? Specific training on that. In a, in a B2B department, much of the customer service with, with big clients, right? Really major, major business to business clients. Yeah. The first point of contact is going to be their sales rep, right? Their salesperson who who yes. made the deal, right? Yes. Um, do you find that there's a difference in how salespeople versus customer service departments address complaints, and one side might be better at it or could learn from the other? I, I mean, I might would question. imagine like it, it kind of answers itself, right? The B two B the the person that's spending a million dollars a year as a sponsor of a of an organization of an event or something yeah. is going to get their phone call returned right away and anything to make it better. Yeah. The, the customer who's spending ten dollars on a meal, well, yeah, it's ten dollars this week, whatever, yeah. right? It's not yeah. worth the phone call. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so how do you translate? That. Yeah, it's a really mentality. good. It's a very good point. Uh, it's a, it's a really astute observation. Uh, and what's what's really great to see from my perspective is I've already had like tons of sales teams um, go out and buy a copy of the book for the whole sales team because they, they awesome. know it's part of their culture now. Like you are in customer service, whether you are or not is immaterial. You are right. So whether that's on your business card doesn't matter. Um, what what I find interesting is that salespeople. Are, are so motivated to keep a customer because they right. have a direct economic incentive to mm-hmm. do so that in some cases they'll do things, they'll treat customers better than an actual customer service professional will because it's a, just, it's a, it's a self-preservation game. But what's really tricky, and I've seen this personally both as a customer and also as a consultant to lots of B2B organizations, is that a lot of times the salesperson is like, look, we got to keep this customer happy. We got to do whatever. They're a big account, whatever. The problem is the salesperson doesn't really know what's possible. So right, right. there's this whole weird disconnect where the customer service team knows what can be done, but doesn't want to do it. The <laughs> salesperson wants to do everything, but doesn't actually know what is in the bag of tricks, uh, right. which is why they, they definitely need to cross pollinate as much as possible. But any salesperson you talk to knows that the that the best kind of customer is the one that's going to reorder every month, right? It's the it, where you don't really have to sell the them. The sale ever is again, right. yeah, right. So that mindset needs to go to all levels of the company, right? Yes. The person who yes. spent ten dollars on food this week and is going to come back and eat and spend ten dollars on a sandwich next week and next week and next week is as integral to your business as getting a new person to show up with the coupon that you put in the magazine or whatever, you know, or the online offer that you pushed out 17 times during the week and three people brought in and one decided that they're going to be a return customer, you would have been better off just doing a good job with that person who comes in 52 weeks a year, right? I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get, we got some great questions here. Um, Rachel Miller asks, uh, do you feel brands spend the majority of their time addressing haters to the detriment of showing fans appreciation? 
Uh, that's a great question, Rachel, and hello. Um, no, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think most brands do neither. Uh, well, in fact, the research proves it. One third of all customer complaints are never answered. Uh, most of those complaints that are never answered are online, which is mysterious so that everybody can see you ignoring them. Uh, and, <laughs> and certainly brands do not, I think, routinely uh, answer their their fans, uh, You know, at least not in a strategic uh, show of force kind of way. So I think the problem is actually both. Uh, I will tell you that from a research standpoint, in terms of what's going what your company is going to gain, uh, what I tell our clients is hug all your haters first, because that's sort of like, eh, 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 you know, like warning detection system, hug your haters first, get that handled. And then, and then with whatever additional bandwidth you have, then, then hug your lovers. Like, so, so, you know, <laughs> start with the problem children and then move into the fans. Now I, I can certainly understand where people who are in sort of the advocacy business would say, no, do it the other way around, take people who like you and make them love you. Uh, and I, Completely agree. I've done a lot of programs in that regard, but um, you know, you 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 can't let unhappy customers just leave. In my estimation, right, right. Great um, question. Love it. Yeah, great question. Uh, Mitch Jackson says, Jay, in your research, did you come across any third-party companies that specialize in hugging the haters for small and large companies? Can this be? Uh, let me see. I'm not seeing outsource. what else, yeah. but I, I can, I can yeah. clearly, can you outsource your hugging? Yeah, the great question, Mitch. Thanks. And hello. Uh, nice to have you here. Uh, so there's lots of agencies, um, that, that do especially social media customer service for brands. Uh, ICUC is one of them. True voice. There's, there's a number of companies that, that sort of staff social media customer service for brands. Um, you don't see as many third parties handling what we would call legacy customer service. So phone and email. Obviously, you've got lots of outsourced call centers from India, some in the U.S. as well. You know, so can that be outsourced? Yeah, it's outsourced all the time. Is it the best idea? Uh, I would say maybe not so much, but, you know, other people might disagree. Not if you want to build a culture, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, whatever. you're saying this is so integral to our culture. That yeah, we're, we're going to outsource it to a different world. country. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> one of my favorite examples of Mitch, and you'll love this from the book, is there's a company out there, a big fan of these guys called Needle. And what Needle does, uh, and Rachel liked this too, based on her question. So what Needle does is they take your existing customers, your existing fans, and they activate them. So the way it works is um, in an e-commerce environment, it's almost always e-commerce. Uh, they take people who have bought the product a bunch of times, super fans, they're super knowledgeable. And then in a live chat environment, so you go to the website and, you, and you're clicking around and usually you get the pop-up that says, hey, can I help you with the annoying like fake photo, the lady with the headset? <laughs> uh, in this case, they say, would you like help from an actual customer? And you're like, whoa, I've never been asked that before. Yes, I think that's pretty cool. I would like help from an actual customer, not some like robot. And so you're like, yes, I would. And so the live chat comes up and they actually take people, real customers who are working from home in their bathrobe or whatever. And they actually do the live chat guided tour kind of stuff. Not, a, not, a, not an agent, an actual customer. So my favorite example from the book is um, Needle has, as one of their clients, uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. So there's this lady, her name is Barry. They wouldn't tell me her last name for privacy purposes, but Barry is like a super duper cruise freak. Like she's been on every Royal Caribbean cruise multiple times. Like she knows everything, knows like get the carrots, not the celery. This comedian's funny. This comedian's not funny. It's this many inches between the bed and the shower. Like she's a freak. So she does needle in the you know spare time, literally from her kitchen. Last year, 
by herself, she sold $12 million worth of cruises. Wow. And she gets a piece of every deal. It's an affiliate program. Wow. Awesome. And any and, and that affiliate program's there for any customer who wants to participate in so, answering so questions? So the way it works or? is Needle, Needle goes through your customer database and basically right. figures out who the real educated advocates are. And then they approach them and say, hey, would you like to make some extra cash on the side? You can do it nights and weekends if you want. And then they kind of work with the brand to kind of draft um, these customers into the Needle environment. It's pretty cool. And they're going to have so much more credibility because they've had the exact same customer experience that the person's well, looking it's, for. Yeah, it's, and plus it's they're, 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 even if they are compensated an affiliate, it's not the same as being an employee Precisely. That's been handed a script and Precisely. Said, when exactly. they ask a you say i hear your complaint we would like to help you with that give us a second yep yep yeah exactly you hear that <laughs> have paper you tried like, turning it off and turning it yeah, on again <laughs> yeah exactly but now they have a lot of credibility because they're in hug your hater so we got that going right. from needle as well so. <laughs> thanks mitch uh craig carpenter asks uh for small business and solopreneurs that may not have bandwidth to respond to everyone what techniques can we employ to show we care but not spin our wheels on customers that just wanted to complain for the heck of it? And I'll say that uh, Craig, who runs Relay, a uh, great image uh, app, image development app, um, is great about responding to people like almost no small business owner of, of a similar business that I've seen. So I got to I got to give Craig that plug because he's awesome go, about responding to customers. But go What's, ahead. Like, wh wh how do you how do you do it as a solopreneur who, who can only only has two hands to yeah. put on the keyboard? So right? so what's funny is when I when I get this question in other settings, it's how can a big company who has so many customers <laughs> have the bandwidth to respond to everybody. We have too many customers. So you either have, you either don't have enough people or you have too many customers. Everybody has the, the same problem just from a different uh, prism. Uh, I would say to you, Craig, what I say to everybody, which is you absolutely have the resources. You just choose to not deploy them that way. Um, spend a little bit less money on marketing, a little bit more money on customer service and your problem is solved. As we've talked about earlier, that will actually pay off disproportionate to what the marketing spend would pay off. So I think that's the real answer, which is spend more time on customer service, go hire another person, spend money, spend less money on marketing, spend less money on whatever else you're spending money on. It will actually pay off. Now, in terms of customers who want to complain for the heck of it, who are just spinning your wheels, there are certainly um, circumstances where you can filter those out, whether it's uh, whether you're looking for particular words or phrases, some software is really good at, at that, at helping you triage um, particular customer scenarios based on syntax. Um, you know, your results may vary, but that may may be a way to go. The other thing that I would advise you to do, and it's and it's really hard to do this because it sounds like you're already really responsive, which is great. But if you're like, look, what I want to be is uber responsive, um, but I'm getting kind of spread too thin what you probably need to do is purposefully and strategically narrow your channels, right? So what I say in the book is you got to eventually answer everybody everywhere. And I believe that to be true. I mean, we're just scratching the surface. Um, you know, people are already starting to want to interact with brands on Facebook and WhatsApp and WeChat and Snapchat and, and on and on and on and on. But if you really are resource constrained and you can't redeploy resources, what you have to say to your customers is, we love you everywhere, but we answer you here. Mm -hmm. Right, And you pick two or three channels that you know you can knock out of the park. And in every other channel, you say, we don't do customer service here because we simply cannot. We cannot keep the level of support that we want and be everywhere. So we're going to funnel you into these places. And we're sorry, but that's the way it has to be. 
that's the real answer. Thanks, Craig. Great question. And it, it triggered something in my mind from the book. Um, you mentioned about 70%, I think, of customer complaints take place on Facebook, which I was... Within, within I was, social media, inside with, social media. Yeah. Inside social media, right, yeah. take place on Facebook, which I was a little surprised about Me because I, I always think of Twitter as kind of the place Me where too. you put the ad handle, you ask a question, you say yes. this didn't work out, and somebody's monitoring that and responding. With Facebook, is it is it mostly taking place within the company page, the company Facebook page? No. Or is it taking place like I just posted to my friends on my own timeline and exactly. say, I went to XYZ business and boy, the customer service is awful. I'm never yep. going there again unless they blah, blah, blah. So you so that takes a whole nother level of monitoring, right? I mean, because you're not directing it. Yes and no. Yes and no. So, so there are certainly complaints on on brand pages. I mean, if you just looked at Starbucks last week when they changed their loyalty program, they had like seven thousand comments on one post. You mm -hmm. can kind of see that um, in full throat. Um, and and so more and more, we are seeing direct customer service interactions in Facebook, partially because a there's just so many more users of Facebook than Twitter, right? And so yes, Twitter has separate handles um, that, that Facebook doesn't have and isn't really set up to do that. Uh, but but with Facebook's move in Facebook Messenger to customer mm -hmm. service, they're very aggressively trying to push Messenger as a customer service, sort of as a Twitter killer for customer service. That that is a, something to watch. So part of it's just math and in, in the in the variances in the user base. But you're exactly right, Ross, that that a lot of what we see in Facebook as complaints isn't necessarily looking for an answer. It's looking for an audience. What right. you really want is all of your friends to say, oh, that totally sucks. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like you want like all of this like group oh. empathy kind of thing. Oh, happening. man, that happened to me last week. I'm never right. going there again either. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you can as a brand. You can, as a brand, find those in some cases. If they're not, you know, if they're tagged private, then you can't. But but if they're if they're actually tagged public, look, I'm one of those people who, you know, even though some things I don't want everybody to see, I put everything in public on Facebook. I don't have time to worry about my privacy settings. I don't even care. I do too, um, unless it comes like, from so, Instagram or whatever, and it's yeah. already set. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm so if I'm bitching about some brand and I'm not tagging them directly, I'm not trying to at them. I'm just I'm just sort of like. I'm just kind of throwing them shade. Um, that brand could find it and they could answer me back. And you know what it would do? It would blow my mind and win my heart, which is exactly what I talk about in the book. And and what how should they go about doing that? I mean, how how much effort should they put into monitoring? I mean, it shouldn't know? be that much effort. What you know, with right. any sort of decent software that's got a Facebook um a Facebook feed, you, you should be listening for your API, yeah, right? Listen, yeah, listen for your brand, listen for hashtags, listen for product names. Um, and and if all of a sudden uh, you see a bunch of people saying, hey, 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 then you got to go. Now, one thing that you got to be careful about is when you're responding to somebody in real estate that's not your real estate in Facebook, you got to tread a little lightly. You got to be like, look, we noticed that you said this. Right, um, right. I know you didn't invite us. You know, you didn't ask us this directly. But if we can help, we're happy to help. Right. You just have to acknowledge the fact that they didn't call you out directly. And there may be a reason for that. So you can't just barge in and, and assume that they want to hear from you because maybe they didn't. Right, right. Um, Craig asks, um, just curious, writing a book seems like such a big commitment. Jay, what inspired you to write this book versus other topics? Well, Craig, as you probably know, I, you know, my, my career has been in marketing politics originally. Um, I used to be a political campaign consultant. Uh, so this wow. is a very exciting time for me. Uh, and also a time where I'm really, really glad I don't do that for a living anymore. 
<laughs> like, well, that was a good idea. I got out of politics and onto the internet in about 1993. And as it turns out, that was a good idea. Do so, you share which candidates you well, work with? I, I'm, you from, I'm from Arizona originally. And oh, okay. in those days, in those days, there was only one party in Arizona. The state's changed a lot. But in those days, if you wanted to be in politics, you were a Republican campaign consultant uh, because there was no other jobs otherwise. And so right, right. Uh, probably the most noteworthy thing I ever did was I, I did all the internet strategy for John McCain when he ran for president the first time. Um, not not oh, the time okay. that he was actually the candidate, but the time when he he uh, was defeated in the primaries by uh, by George Bush. That was probably the, the most noteworthy, biggest thing that I ever did uh, in politics back in the day. Well, um, so, I, I actually lived back in Arizona in the 90s. Is that and, right? And, okay. Yeah, my first, uh, my first big like story that I covered in radio, I took a mic out and I ended up uh, covering the governor's indictment, Governor Symington. Governor Symington. I know him well. <laughs> I did a little work for him too back in the day, of course. That was like the first story I think I broadcast on air on a you know professional station. Was we might well get started hot, right? Let's get this party started. Let's, 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 let's get fired right in here. So The state's so different now. I mean, it's yeah. much, more, much more politically balanced than it was uh, back then. Although you so, never know it. Yeah. So um, one of one of the things that, that interests me, um, and and let me I, let me, let me ask, uh, answer Craig's question real quick. So I didn't sure, get there. Sure. Sorry. Oh, okay. So so um, so I used to be in politics, uh, and I've been in marketing for the whole time. So in in the consulting practice that we have at Convince to Convert, uh, we have all these companies who kept saying to us, "Well, I know you can help us with our social media marketing, but what about our social media customer service?" Or they'd say, "I know you can help us with our social media customer service. What about our phone and email customer service?" There's like all of these weird questions that that were coming up over the last two years, and I thought, "Geez, it's almost 2015 at that point. Like, I can't believe big companies still have these questions. Like, th there's a lot of confusion." about customer service. And so I started digging and I realized that customer service has been disrupted the exact same way that marketing right. has been disrupted. And for the same reason, it's the exact same story. It's social media, mobile, millennial culture, consumer behavior. It's the exact same story, um, but customer service instead of marketing. And I started to realize that there are these brands out there that have really committed to customer service. And for them, customer service is marketing. I'm like, wow, this is actually, uh, this isn't like, apples and a pork sandwich. This is like apples and oranges. They're like really close together. It's like an adjacency. So for me, being a marketing consultant and writing about customer service in this day and age is perfectly natural. 10 years ago, it would have been crazy. Like, why would you write a book about customer service? But now I really think and realize and writing the book helped me understand that, that it really is increasingly in the same sort of bandwidth. And so um, it's really hard to write this book though, uh, Craig and, and Ross and other people, because as I mentioned at the outset of the show, Nobody wants to hear it. Like nobody, nobody wants to hear that they're bad at customer service because they all think they're good at it. It's like the stat that 91% of people think they're great drivers. Well, right. that doesn't make sense, but that's the stat, right? And so right. it was hard and challenging to write a book on customer service. It's hard and challenging to market a book on customer service. That's why I'm so thrilled the book has sold so well already. Um, it makes me really happy and I have faith in humanity now. Thanks, Craig. Um, one of the things that I, I found really interesting watching you on another blab is you mentioned that, that a lot of people think of social media in terms of customer acquisition. And you said that social media really isn't the place to be doing customer acquisition. It's for customer engagement. It's for, you know, taking a fan and making yeah. them a bigger fan or yeah. turning them into an advocate and for keeping customers. And and I, I think it just surprised me how how 
clear you were on that. There was no waffling or wavering. Yet most people, when they go, okay, well, my business needs to go social, the first thing they think is, how can we run a marketing campaign using social media, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's of course. Kinda... Now, now I would I would draw that that line between paid and organic, right? So paid right. social is a great way to to do customer acquisition. Um, we do a lot of paid social at Convince and Convert. We promote uh, my book and our podcasts and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, my new live streaming show, all kinds of stuff that we're doing. So, um, but, but you got to realize that's Facebook ads and things yeah, like course, that, right? Course. It's when not you know, post on your Facebook page and then right. leave it to the chances, right? Well, because here's why, I mean, just, just I mean, just to, just to boil this down to its simplest essence, mm -hmm. um, what are the chances that somebody who doesn't like your business already is ever going to see your organic post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Now it's possible that one of your friends shares it and then you see it that way. And like, Oh, what's that? I mean, yes, that can happen, but that's not really a strategy. Um, right. You know, I, I don't, I don't ever believe that going viral is a strategy. Right. I believe that going viral is, is a happy accident in most cases. Uh, and I refuse to put dollars against that and say, well, our strategy is we're going to make this thing and it's going to go viral. Well, most of the time it's not. And so right. most of the time you're going to be a fool. So, so I believe that, that social media, Facebook in particular, but really all social media is essentially an email newsletter, but shorter. Right, right. Because what you're doing is staying top of mind uh, with people who have given you permission to do so. Right, right. Email allows you to stay top of mind with people who have given you permission to do so. It's the same dynamic, right? It's just that one is sexy, social media, and one is now old and tired, email. Right. But, right. It, but 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 the whole mechanics are the same in most cases. Right. Right. Now, you did mention that live streaming, though, can be a platform for customer acquisition. I think so. I, yeah, I think so. And customer service for that matter. Right. Right. What do you see? What are you finding with, you know, companies that you you work with and that you've observed and you've studied? What is what do you see as, as their approach to live streaming? Do you think it's been effective for them? Has it been a, a useful thing in this past year? Like, I mean, live streaming, of course, has been around for years, but basically where mobile phones and everybody dove in are, are the, you know, from Meerkat at South by Southwest last year to Periscope. Uh, which is about a year old, and then Blab came along in in April 2015. Since then, what what have you seen as far as uh, how companies have used it, and 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 what has been their reaction? Have they been happy with it? Have they gotten a benefit? Are they sticking with it, or are they saying, eh, I'm I'm not sure if this is really worth the the investment in time or money." Well, the nice thing is the investment is is insignificant right, um, right. in the big scheme of things, right? So, so the 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 operational cost of being in the live streaming game, if you will, is is nothing compared to to most marketing initiatives, and I think that gives it a real advantage. Mm -hmm. I mean, heck, you and I are old enough to know that that when you know a company used to want to do a video, <laughs> right? You had to go get like a crew and like right, right. lights and lasers and dry ice and like lunch for everybody and you know it was going to be like 15 grand right to do a three minute corporate video and i'm not kidding folks that's how it used to be so now you just press a button on your phone um like okay even if it sucks how bad could it suck it didn't cost me anything <laughs> right, right, pressing right. a button on my phone so uh so that that's i think really benefits uh, streaming long term is that you don't have to hit it out of the park because you're not financially committed to it in the, in the same way um, I, I don't see, while I think live streaming can be really good um, for acquisition, I don't see too much of that yet. I, I see a lot of um, documentary style kind of behind the scenes content marketing stuff 
which I right. think is really good. I think it's a, a terrific use case. Um, you know, let's bring our customers closer to the brand by showing them things that they simply can't see on their own, or things that it would be too difficult for them to see, or or you know, geographically distant or what have you. Uh, I think it's really interesting, and I also um, do believe that that platforms like Blab can be great for customer service, especially in an onboarding situation, right? So if you've got mm. a bunch of customers, you know, these are all the new customers this week of this software package. Okay, and we're gonna get everybody together, you know, right now, and we're gonna go through the onboarding process and we're gonna ask questions and make it more of a peer-to-peer situation and all that. Screen sharing, of course, would be a big, big part of that. Um, and, and the so fact that it's public that only helps you sell public. that software yeah. to, to who people cares? who, right, yeah. right. Um, because that's, you know, do you think, I mean, if you were to make a guess, do you think that Blab will eventually have like an enterprise solution or, a you know, a way to put a sort of a firewall around it and, and, and use it for internal company communication? Do you that's see something? what I would do. Right. right. I mean, because eventually they're going to have to pay for this somehow. So, <laughs> so, right, right, right. uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, there's only so many models here, right? You, we can either, you can either make it nearly free. And so you're going to get charged $5 for this show. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't think is a model that's going to make a lot of sense for them. You can put ads in it, and I'm sure they they have thought about that, but that has a customer experience um, detriment that that I think this community would not be very happy with, uh, although I think this community is loyal enough that they'd still stick in there. But but ultimately, I think you probably do pivot to um, a freemium model where, where for this kind of thing is free, but if you want to make it private or have um, you know, more features or more seats or what have you, then, you know, we're going to charge you the same thing you charge for, you know, go to, go to meeting or something like that. Right. It's a hundred bucks a month or what have you, or, or maybe it's 500 a month if you're serious or, you know, tiered pricing based on attendees, it almost becomes, it almost becomes newfangled webinar software at that point, which I think is really fascinating. Right. Right. So what do you see the, the upside in addition to say product demonstration and, and product how to taking questions from new customers, things like that. What do you see the 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 longer term game plan or upside from from live streaming, or do you see a, a, any other upside from it? Well, for for streaming in general, um, I think you absolutely can do some really interesting things on on product introductions, right? On on you know reveals, and you're already seeing some of that right now, which is spectacular. I also feel like there isn't quite as much as there will be on what essentially is um, a new infomercial, right? So instead of doing a, instead of doing an 18 minute, 30 minute long form TV commercial for the new Swiffer mop or whatever, (laughs) why wouldn't you just periscope that? Like to me, that's a no brainer. Like I think direct response TV is going to have a real problem uh, with, with streaming eventually when the demographics start to tip right now, most of your direct response TV is targeted to older Americans who wouldn't know Periscope if it hit them in the head, uh, much less a blab. But, but as those numbers tip eventually, um, I think this could very well be the new infographic medium. I mean, right now, most of what we see here is content, not pitching, and that's probably for the best, but I certainly thought about doing a five hour blab show, just talking about this book and asking you to buy it. Right. Right. So, and you feel, I mean, obviously in a decision to even consider Blab, you know that, that the audience num- in terms of numbers is very small on Blab compared to what you would reach on a tweet, on a Facebook page, on, on, on many other forums. Even doing a college radio show, you probably reach more people than you Which do I on did. Blab. But do you feel that the connection that you're building with people is so strong through a Blab? Like, what is the attraction to you to do to do a Blab versus something else other yeah. than you just 
thought that this show was so wonderful that you'd you'd make an hour out of your evening. But seriously, like, like what, well, why blab? Why do you why do you turn to blab as a and, as a place? And sometimes to go? not only do I come on as a guest, but we've we've done some episodes of my social pros podcast uh, as blabs as well. Uh, I have a new show called Marketing Marvels, which I do every three weeks, where I actually demo uh, marketing technology that I really believe in and support. So I bring on um, somebody who's the CMO of the company. We talk about the company, why it's good, what it costs, who's it for. We do a demo of the software, and then I open it up to questions. Um, it's a really neat format, I think. Uh, you can check that out, Marketing Marvels, bit.ly slash Marketing Marvels. Um, so that show is actually on a Hangout Um for a couple of reasons that, that aren't important necessarily to get into technically. Um, but but I think the ability, there's two things I like about Blab. Um, one, the ability to see other people makes for a smoother show, right? Mm -hmm. So I do a podcast every single week. My company does five weekly podcasts now. Um, between all of us, we have produced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio content. Uh, and one of the hardest things, because we almost always have multiple hosts on our shows, is that dynamic between three or more people whose turn is it to talk? And we always have sort of back channel Skype and all that. But this is just when I can see what you're thinking, you can, I can see you lean forward or back. It just makes for a better conversation. It's just there's a reason why we have eyes. Right. Um, so so there's that. And then clearly on the blab side, uh, the ability to pull other people in so that the audience becomes participation. Right. Uh, I think it's just really compelling on on all sides. I just find it really, really fascinating. Uh, you you can't do it. You know what it reminds me of? It's kind of like blog comments. So some of you are old enough to remember, been around long enough when blog comments were still a thing, like where I'd write a blog <laughs> post and I'd spend the rest of the day in the comments. Reacting interacting to with comments. Yeah. Now that never happens. Like nobody comments as though I might comment some on Facebook or Twitter, but, but it just, you know, blog comments just don't, they just don't happen. It's not just me. It's almost everywhere. There are still some sites that are acceptance, but generally speaking, it doesn't happen anymore. And I and I think this is this is that spirit, right? Which I really like. So if somebody was, say, thinking of starting out uh, doing some type of online broadcast, mm -hmm. would you say start a podcast or where you're going to have more downloads and more listeners no. or start no. a live stream where people are going to see your face and you're going to build connections, even if it's with a much smaller, smaller audience because of the interactive aspect of yeah. it? Uh, I would I would start with the live stream because you're never going to get anywhere without true fans. Right. Uh, as I tell people who want to start a podcast or people who want to start a blog or people who want to start a blab or anything else, if you're going to do this and you're going to give it a go, your show or your site or your whatever has to be, at least for somebody, their favorite show or site in the world right, right if you're not somebody's favorite show or site in the world you have no chance no chance and uh, you have a much better chance of being somebody's favorite in a more visceral environment like this than in a less visceral environment like a podcast or a blog that's my estimation now the tech the other reason i would say to start here is that if you have this you have a podcast right blab right. will send you an audio file 30 seconds after the show is over so it's not either or. If somebody's going to start a show, I would say do it on Blab or similar and also make it a podcast and then do what I do, which is and then transcribe it and make it a blog post and then rewrite that blog post and put it on Medium and then rewrite that blog post again and put it on LinkedIn. So it's not one thing. It's five or six things. That's the real answer. There's the formula, the formula for success. Thank Atomization you. is the most underrated marketing initiative in the world. 
So J.S. Gilbert asks, uh, as we move more and more into influencer marketing via influencer interactions with product services, do you think the same influencers can be used for? And then the show more button still doesn't work. So I'm going to close out the <laughs> question work? and see if I can, I can see more. Uh, no, I can't. I, can, I see. I, I would only see more if I didn't go ahead and, and move it to the center. So I won't do that with other questions. JS, if you're still here, can you just throw the rest of your question into the uh, chat box? The chat? Uh, let me pin it again. Oh, he's calling in. Great. Okay, there we go. That, that we'll makes it problem. easy. We solve this problem with technology. Yes, <laughs> I, I I thought I could probably uh, articulate it faster than I could type it. Um, great, so the, the great decision. Was here uh, regarding influencer marketing, and as we're moving more and more into this, do we see that the potential is there for the influencers themselves to also become problem solvers to be? Um, maybe frontline uh, uh, individuals for these brands, for these services and companies? Uh, Great question. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think similar to the example from Needle we were talking about earlier, I think there really is an opportunity for for advocates to, to be more than just more than just a volunteer marketer. Um, I think you can really help with with customer service. You can help with sales. I mean, it's almost like you know modern day affiliate marketing with the social media overlay. Um, now, in in bigger companies, there's a lot of concern about that because, look, these people aren't employees, therefore we can't control them if we want to. And you know, so so there's a little bit of like, well, I don't know. Uh, but but in theory, especially for smaller companies who aren't as concerned about the legality of that or um, or, or sort of policies and procedures, absolutely. I, I mean, look. If 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 your advocates, whoever they are, and and influencers, whoever they are, who are true influencers, that they actually like your product, not just being paid to say that they actually like it. If they're not willing to say yes over and over, well, then you don't have a very strong program to begin with. Right? You got to go back to the drawing board. Aaron Kilby asks, "What are your thoughts on LinkedIn now with all the posting going on?" Almost like Facebook, uh, political posts, spam posts. It's not all about business anymore. And of course, you see a lot of people reacting like, shouldn't this go on Facebook when somebody... So Funny, right? what, what are your thoughts about where LinkedIn's going? You know, LinkedIn wanted to be a content platform instead of a social network, and they got exactly what they wanted. So <laughs> with that with that comes this, right? And, and so, um, you know, they, they want to aggregate eyeballs to sell ad dollars to augment what they're already doing, which is very, very strong, of course, in the recruiting space. I mean, they've almost single-handedly killed recruiting in, in this country. So they've got that covered, but they wanted Selling to be- Selling your data, right? To, yeah, to I mean, they yeah, they wanted to be sort of a content player, right? So, um, and that's that's what happens. You can't just pick uh, the content that you want. Um, and, and really, there's no way for them to legislate it, right? Unless they come down and get a bunch of, a bunch of moderators and say, oh, this isn't appropriate for LinkedIn. It was self-regulating for a long time. It was self-governing for a long time. And now sort of the, 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 you know, the, the inmates have broken out of the asylum. Um, and they, I don't know, I don't think the genie's going back on the bottle. Um, it, it's going to be a real issue for them, but you know what? It's funny. They've really emphasized the blogging side of it for, for a while too, much more so than the, than the sort of post sharing side of it. And I think that's part of the master plan. I mean, I think they, I think their biggest competitor right now is medium more so than anything else. Do you recommend people 
use use the Facebook publishing, uh, the, rather the uh, LinkedIn publishing aspects, re, re, repurpose your blog, repurpose shows, repurpose different things and and, yeah. and start to have a, a track record of what you your best stuff. Right. I mean, there's no need to put anything yeah. less than your best stuff on LinkedIn. It's just there. It's just there to be another place that employers can find out more about you or customers or or so forth. Well, you can also aggregate audience here. I mean, there's lots of right, people there right. who who have real. I mean, I've and then I've move that audience and that audience of can move, right? Yeah, yeah. I've I've gotten thousands and thousands of views there in the past on some things I've written and and the you know when I when I write a lot of things native to LinkedIn, meh, not so much. Probably not realistically. But but to but to rewrite something that I wrote on my blog, for example, and put it on LinkedIn. Um, the amount of time that takes, I don't do it. The amazing Kristen Cardos, who is right here in this chat, does it. Um, the amount of time that that takes is not massive. And so, right. well, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, one is better than zero, right? So, right, right, right. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jed. It's been great spending an, an hour with you. I really appreciate you coming on. The new book is called Hug Your Haters. There it is. Screenshot that. You could hold it up. People can. There's a poster in the book. <laughs> Every book gets a poster. You get a poster, the Hatrix in every book. And and there's a great go summary to, go to in the back as well. So if you there don't like is. to read, Jay, would be probably be very happy if you still bought the I got book. You hooked up. Took the summary and implemented the Socks. game plan. <laughs> Socks. Go to hugyourhaters.com. Send me your receipt if you buy the book. I think you buy seven books, I think, which is nothing. And you get these amazing I Love Hater Socks. Awesome. Hugyourhaters.com, jbear.com, convinceandconvert.com, right? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much, Jay. It's great having you on. Next week, we have Brian Fanzo to talk about live streaming and the future of live streaming at the one-year anniversary of Periscope. Thanks again, Jay Bear. And the book is called Hug Your Haters. See you next week, everyone. Thanks, guys.